that there's a real value proposition in putting fabrication facilities at L1. Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a show about how satellites, space technology, and exploration are transforming our solar system. 60 seconds in space. Ever heard of a lunar mass driver? They are a long tube that would accelerate small satellites into orbit with electromagnetism from the surface of the moon at an escape velocity of 2.4 kilometers per second. And this approach uh, would not require any propellant. Also, ULA has been planning a strategic water reserve at the lunar south pole for the past six years. And two researchers from NASA inserted biomarkers into the brains of rats to identify the neurons that trigger the topor state, which is a hibernation-like state where the body experiences reduced temperature and metabolic rates. This approach to interplanetary travel could reduce crew consumables by 50% and reduce the size of a spacecraft by 40 to 70%. Oof, that was a lot. <laughs> okay, so the entrepreneur we're, we're about to hear from today um, is, is a current or former board member of IAF, NSS, the International Moon Base Alliance, Moon Village Association, <laughs> Moon Society, and he's the Chief Executive Officer at Offworld, Jim Caravalla. Jim, so glad to meet you at IAC last year, and we're honored to have you here today on the Frontier Space Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. I'd love to see what you guys are doing over there at Offworld. Uh, it's, it's an exciting mission you're on. Uh, I was wondering what inspired you to found Offworld and, and embark on this uh, lifelong journey um well i i think it's um you know it's just a combination of um intrinsic passion and uh ex extrinsic imperative shall we say um I, i'd always been like most of us always been fascinated by space as a kid and just kind of picked up in my early years how fragile and how vulnerable our planetary ecosystem really is both to the constraints i wouldn't say limits but the constraints that we um in inherently have as an economy and as civilization on this one surface it became quite clear that you know as opposed to being on a closed nation state if you're on a closed planetary surface at some point if you're really not able to utilize the environment outside of your planetary sphere you effectively have ensuing economic and resource constraints and that has that always leads to conflict tension war loss of life disease um and so we we need to figure out a way to open up that frontier again yeah that, that's one of the big reasons i mean then then there's you know a couple of other main parameters um you know, so one is a majorly a, a life insurance policy for the entire human civilization um, against existential risk. And the other, as I kind of explained, to make life better on Earth. And then the third is really to get that spiritual release and open up the frontier again so that the, the few nuts at the edge of the population spectrum can go out there and do their thing and uh, 
Amazing. So, um, could you share more about the, the mission you're on? Where, where we are currently and where we're going? Um, yeah. Yeah. So after many, many years of then personally trying to figure out ways of um, how to manifest that, that uh, ambition and that mission, basically intersected the, the principles of uh, significant unsupervised autonomy, teleoperations, modular swarm and agent-based robotic systems, um, industrially hardened, but able to reconfigure and operate for many, many uh, shift cycles without human intervention. And took those principles and uh, principles and architectural concepts down, um, and reconfigured them for the terrestrial mining and construction sectors. And so we we found customers um, here on Earth, where people are. So that's where customers are, um, and um, managed to get the company kicked off and uh, engage in development contracts to to get our architectures up and our robots up and running um, without any investment, with no debt, no dilution, um, and running profitably from day one on uh, fully commercial contracts. So, so now we've built this company out into you know, a good team over several facilities, um, expanding into a... Um, uh, different countries now with uh, subsidiaries as we get into we start moving into production readiness and the idea is that we will have swarms of hundreds or even thousands of these robots of different species working together in underground mines um, on the seabed uh, in tunnels on construction sites um, anywhere where there is an extreme environment and you preferably don't want people in harm's way. And then once those neural nets, the intelligence algorithms, our architectures are mature enough, then we'll start deploying them uh, out into space and onto the lunar surface. We'll just have the, the robots continue um, doing what they know. Um, we're treating Earth as a celestial body the moon will be another celestial body. Reduce the engineering delta between our Earth-based colonies and our space-based colonies. The um, machine intelligence and neural nets will configure the parameters of different gravities and atmospheres, and they'll learn. So over a few hours or days, they'll be up to speed with, the, with how to walk properly on the moon or how to... Um, um, roll the tracks properly with the right change of coefficient of frictions due to mass differences and things. And I think we can, um, instead of <clears throat> working very hard to launch one rover onto the moon and cross our fingers and hold our breath that the you know, $50 million or $100 million investment is worthwhile, um, we'll be launching hundreds of uh, robots to the lunar surface um, over a short period of time and actually have them build. Um, and from that point on, 
once we've uh, configured our first um, extractions for mineral and water, um, and also our first constructions for habitation and um, shelter, and then then really we're we're off to the races and we can start doing all sorts of things, including in space manufacturing and processing, and, and any number of activities. So the idea is to build a solar system toolkit that will allow us to not only do one thing, but to do have them do all things under a common platform. You know, just hearing your words, it's um, incredibly inspiring. Um, Good. Yeah, it's and it's exciting. Uh, you know, the the future is so exciting because the you know a, a, a vision like off world with the uh, type of um, uh, objectives that it has is not something any one company can do on its own or any one organization. It's an integration of dozens, if not hundreds, of prior developments. Uh, and uh, that's the kind of ecosystem we're looking for. So we expect to see thousands of our robots um, and space bots um, operating uh, in LEO and beyond, and then onto the lunar surface in the asteroids. Excellent. Yeah, I, I think space bots is going to become a thing. Uh, so wondering what kind of mining and, and construction activities um, are you planning for on that, on that giant rock uh, up there? I'm really glad. So, I mean, the first, the first big uh, obvious requirement is for water uh, and oxygen. Um, but water is a, is a good first nominal target for a propellant, a LOX hydrogen propellant, naturally. The challenges are, are very significant um, because the, the the economic concentrations of water, of course, presumed, as all evidence suggests, uh, are presumed to be at the poles. Uh, we still have to ground truth uh, the nature of it to help us plan in detail how to extract. Um, but but then you're you're potentially talking of uh, between twenty and forty Kelvin. Uh, temperature operating environments with unknown consistency um, and it's not 100% uh, clear which engineering approach is best. Is it is it to try and build our systems and our electronics to cope with those temperature regimes or do we try and create localized environments with much more um, so-called normal temperature regimes uh, where we can uh, literally build closed surface environments and capture whatever volatiles comes off, which, which also has its advantages because as soon as you start landing or adding any um, energy to the surface, um, if there is loosely bound ice um, rather than uh, chemically bound hydroxyls, if it's loosely bound ice, you, you run the risk of sublimation in the vacuum, going straight from solid to gas and just disappearing off um, out into the big black. So, you know, we don't, we want to avoid losing 90% of the resource we're trying to grab onto. Um, because even from the surface, even when you're at the lunar surface, if you manage to capture that water, collect and extract that water, hold on to it, 
transport it up to a, um, let's say it's something out of the cold trap. So at least you're operating at 150 Kelvin or something like that, if feasible. And then you can separate, or, or then you can even extract, purify, recondense, separate, separate, undergo liquefaction and maintain storage. You then got to refuel whatever vehicle you're using. And then you probably have a, a requirement of, for every unit of propellant you want to deliver to say L1 or LEO, you're going to need to use between two or four times that amount in propellant just to transport that propellant there. And don't forget your return journey uh, as well, which includes that. So you have a you have a, a significant um, bird, burden of um, additional propellant. So you know if you have a delivery requirement of 100 tons in your first year, you, you may you may want to have uh, a 500 or even a thousand ton production capability to allow for losses, to allow for transport, to allow for mistakes, to allow for emergencies and contingencies. Um, so you, you, you may need to have a production capability of 10x of your customer commitment. So you've got technical challenges, environmental challenges, and uh, economic challenges right from the get-go, which is why we've taken the business model. That we have a very clear vision model of, of actually taking our robots out to the stars but our business model is rooted firmly in the ground, in the really in the ground, <laughs> terrestrial underground mining. Yeah. Nice, nice, fascinating. I was uh, doing some research and came across some surprising. Uh, we 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 estimate around twenty five hundred metric tons of processed lunar water, which could generate um, around two point four billion in in revenue annually. So fascinating. So wondering, um, there's all sorts of elements. Um, some of the most abundant are oxygen, iron, and, and silicon. I was wondering um, what kind of um, end user enabled applications are you aiming for uh, from extracting such elements? The axes one should consider a complexity and energy. If you've got those, if, if you've got those materials as your fixed, reference point, because they're there on the surface, then what is the energy to extract? And what is the complexity to fabricate whatever it is you want to produce? Uh, so the first, the first is, of course, then uh, what are your objectives and reasons, which, um, which you're getting to. Uh, so I, I, I definitely think um, everything we're doing off-world is on a very much a modular basis. So building from a structural basis, building the fewest number of um, fabricated types of components, but assembling them into the largest variety of configurations has uh, a large number of advantages. So it's a trade-off, but there are some good advantages, especially in the early days. So struts, um, interfaces, pulleys, and cable, for tensile and compressive 
um, configurations. Um, vessels and tanks, tankage for uh, volatile and liquid uh, storage. Structural members of robots and uh, other other pieces like heavy gears and things like this. Um, so you could imagine a kind of steampunk Mad Max type uh, uh, configuration where you've got you, you may we may use uh, additive layer manufacturing. There, there, there may be a huge market before we even get to lunar resources of fabricated materials and research in space. So what what tools and source materials can we take up from Earth and fabricate and configure in very clean microgravity? So not even station ISS level microgravity, but three orders of magnitude less noise. Um, what, what could we manufacture there? What life science research could we do? What genetic gene stressing can we undertake? That may reveal a whole set of lines of inquiry for new products and um, materials that could add significant value here on Earth. That in itself could be in parallel a multi-billion dollar industry. Now, if if that if some of those lines of early, let's say in this decade, we can undertake a bunch of microgravity experimentation in annealing, metal forming, forming of alloys, uh, composite fabrication, and all sorts of other fun experiments. Just play, just play and have some fun and uh, test out uh, some some premises. Let's say we come out with a set of um, high value propositions of well this you know you can create this material with um an aerated honeycomb structure uh without 3d printing but you just basically uh, uh intercede your deposition with inert gas you know with argon type uh, uh infusion and you create a super strong structure but one that's super light you know it's like an air almost like an aerogel or sort a really, a really well-optimized aerogel in microgravity, um, but made out of various metals. Now then we can have some fun. Well, what, what metals work? Well, tungsten might work or nickel or iron or a combination of these. Um, stick a little bit of impurity, you know, create some sulfides, uh, put those in, maybe put some carbon reinforcement in. Play around with a hundred or a thousand different variations, just empirically. Um, because we know so little about how all of this works in, in uh, microgravity. And, and then you might get a slightly different format, which then really highlights the value of L1, possibly L2, but most certainly L1, is that it, it could be that there is something special about as close to zero gravity as you can get, that there's a real value proposition in putting fabrication facilities at L1 and then bringing up your raw material from the lunar surface and doing your manufacturing, material manufacturing at L1. So it, it, it could be that, look, while we're at the lunar surface and we want to use stuff on the lunar surface, we can make, we can do some, a lot of simple stuff. We can, we can make it as big and clumsy as you like, because actually we're not gonna really fly off anywhere. Um, we can make big wheels, 
big lunar wheels um, so that we can roll it anywhere. You know, the bots can drag things around on, on trailers or as trailers. Um, it can it can basically look like uh, 1850s Wild West. You know, we've got wagons and things like that, except they're just made out of regolith uh, based materials rather than wood. Um, and, and so, that, I mean, that I'm not sure whether that's a quaint image or a frightening image, but um, so it can be as simple as you want. It doesn't even have to be electronics based. We can send all the electronics up for a couple of decades at least uh, from Earth uh, and literally just make the structural heavy members. And then we'll transport raw materials from the surface to a good microgravity staging post where we can do some really excellent uh, optimized microgravity manufacturing. Interesting. Well, I've yeah. got some research to do. <laughs> um, is that a goatee you have growing over there? Oh, this? That's, yes. my, that's my space pirate signature. <laughs> nice, nice. I like it. Um, should we take a break real quick? I was wondering how much of a um, challenge do you, do you foresee lunar dust will be for uh, Genus Luna? Well, it's, it's, uh, today is a critical challenge because we know so little about how to address it and handle it. I, I think the, the current paradigms of extraction, if you look at all of the NASA programs and the general thinking among the space resource community, is that, look, there's a whole bunch of regolith on the surface. It's already um, fine dust. It's, you don't need to use large amounts of energy to extract. Um, maybe it is hard on, in the polar regions that there's a harder composition um, because we don't know how the um, how the temperatures and binding with volatiles will you know maybe turn that into a super hard cold concrete type. But a, but generally um, surface regolith should be easier to deal with. The trade-off is that it's going to be highly electrostatically uh, charged, which gets everywhere. And that's that's a tough one to figure out. I mean, do do you create uh, you know a generalized field EM field around your vehicles to to repel? I mean, that's a, an energy requirement. Is that practical? Um, the stuff will stick on rubber and other materials that you may have non-ferrous um, um, materials. How do you really? Um, get every piece off. So maybe you, you can't try to avoid it and you have to figure out how to deal with it. Um, but there's going to be an abrasion cost, an abrasion quotient. And that's always going to be the way. But actually going deep underground, if you had the ability and the energy to break into and cut into the rock and dig down, go 100 meters down and start building your caverns and tunnels and habitations underground. You've got massive radiation protection. You're protecting against meteorites. You've got a stable thermal environment. You can seal it, fill it with air, balance the temperature and create now and effectively a 270, 290 Kelvin operating environment, room temperature environment, fill it with air uh, you've got enough oxygen and nitrogen to um, to use. So th those are those are different approaches. That when you have a a system capable of hard rock mining, which Offworld does, 
rather than surf, surface scraping, which the rest of the world does, then um, there are some different approaches one could take. So that's one that, that doesn't mean that you solve the dust problem. It just means that at least you can reduce the amount of electrostatically charged dust that you have to deal with. Awesome. How, how could um, your, your space bot in, in, in 53 kilogram um, genus Luna complement the, the efforts of 500 uh, kilogram, 500 kilograms. Okay. Hmm. The some, some, when you have a, a semi-autonomous ruggedized self-sufficient architecture of swarming robots with task specific intelligence, able to do repeated actions. What it means is we can construct um, architectures of robots to prepare propellant, end-to-end -end preparation propellant, stored and ready for the first landing of an Artemis uh, spacecraft, um, LOX hydrogen. We can prepare struts, materials, sheet metal, um, even just uh, heavily bounded regolith dust blocks and uh, elements. Don't even need to process it. Just use high induction heating, uh, create uh, non-fluid bound materials, just hardened, especially because there's a lot of ferrous, um, ferrous properties to the regolith. So we can then use sintering um, to just create bound material. And we can do that into shapes of pipes um, structures, squares, bricks. We can. I think the most important thing we can do early on is to use that method um, to just create whole swathes of landing pads and flat, dust-free surfaces, so that when you land, you're not kicking up, you know, hundreds of tons of uh, regular dust. Yeah, seriously. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, you can you can fly some stuff up, and some of it could go orbital, basically very quickly, if we're not careful about, and we don't approach this carefully, we could have a, a very, very sparse exo-atmosphere of regolith suspension around the whole lunar surface within a few weeks, months, or years. You know, Interesting. Huh. I'll have to look into that one. You, you may not see it. It may be so sparse that you don't see it, but it increases your machine degradation on the surface. Interesting. Um, I was also wondering how, how power limited do you believe you will be and, and, and what's your operational capacity per say 24 hours and, and, and lifespan of uh, Genius Luna? Yeah. Well, each bot is a multi-kilowatt unit. If you're going to really do revenue generating production at a pace that allows you to make money, that old bugaboo, um, uh, we're not talking about a hundred watt unit or something like this. Um, and NASA's uh, kilo power nuclear generator is, an, is a nice first step. But um, I, I'd really like to see megawatts of power, highly localized, high energy density power. Um, so the two, the, two, the two options to kick off are either a solar derived power source or nuclear and in in my view it's got to be nuclear 
I, I think it's the one to 10 kilowatts scale units. That's great. That'll get pilot projects off, off and running. But we should go all out on megawatt class um, nuclear power units that we can launch somehow inert, um, even fragment the launches over multiple launches and have our bots assemble um, in LEO or L1 once they're safely out of Earth's environment um, or on the lunar surface. Assemble, yeah. activate them and get them up and running. I agree. Um, as looking into the concept of, of thermal mining, um, where you have reflecting mirrors to, to heat water ice um, and, and collect the water particles from uh, some kind of reflector on the rim of craters. But, it, you know, although this would uh, provide around 60% less mass and, and energy than um, physical excavation, I, I was thinking that lunar solar power um, outposts or, or uh, maybe orbiting um, optical uh, wireless power transmission systems and in the form of a satellite would, would recover significant amounts of uh, time, energy, and resources in, in comparison to thermal mining. And um, I think uh, that could really potentially complement the efforts of what you're doing on the moon. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, so the, the first issue with solar power is that you need a large, large number of panels, solar panels to, to create a power of any meaningful amount. You know, if you've got about a 1.3 um, kilowatt per square meter um, fully incident um, power in space, um, you, you need a, and then you take inefficiencies of power transmission. Let's say you've got an end-to-end -end 20, 20 to 30% uh, system if you're lucky, if you're really good. Let's yes, assume 20%. So you, you'll need somewhere between five and 10 times your incident collective power of capacity just to be able to transmit or to deliver what you want to point. Um, then with wireless power transmission, you have you know, challenges with, um, with uh, the you know, diffraction optics and your beam spreading. So you get a loss of power due to beam spreading unless you can somehow uh, create some exotic solutions there. Um, my old team had developed um, laser power transmission down on optical fiber. So the idea was that we'd have um, uh, solar panels at the peak, you know, one of the peaks of eternal light, and then literally just drop a, drop fibers down the, um, you know, 10, 10 kilometers down into the crater centers create um, waypoint stations that your mining equipment could then draw power from locally. Um, so you can transmit wirelessly down. There are concepts to transmit by, by cable or wire or fiber. Um, so it's, th these are all solutions that are, are open to testing. Uh, even then doing a, a satellite is fine, but for polar regions, um, you know, where do you put the satellite? You, know, you put it at L2, um, try and grab as much as you can and see if you can have a, um, a low incident uh, direct direction to the 
to the pole as much as you can get. Um, but you know, these these are all potential solutions. I, I think I think at scale, at super scale, solar makes a lot of sense, especially for inner solar system, because you know, you've got the inverse square law with distance uh, of um, power loss. Um, but at scale, it's a great opportunity. The logical, the economic and technical logical approach is nuclear. The political, uh, politically available approach is solar. That's, that's the trade space. It's whether, it's whether we want to do what's possible or whether we want to do what we should do. Is I was also thinking that it would behoove Offworld to, uh, you know, potentially publicize and, and land within a year of 2024 to support the, uh, our second return to the moon. There, there are advantages to there are advantages to that, um, and with that in play, whether we're on the moon in five years, whether it takes Offworld ten years. I'm not in a hurry. I think there are there are a lot of good companies like uh, Astrobotic, Intuitive Machines, Blue Moon, um, Blue Origin, SpaceX, um, and their respective teams that are doing a great job in supporting the Artemis program right now. And we're we're ready to join. In, although we're not building landers as such as yet, uh, we're focusing on the what we do when we get there. We're, we're ready to support that ecosystem at a moment's notice. Um, really inspiring to hear your words. Uh, encourages a lot of us to keep on uh, trekking forward. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. That, and it, it's a, this is a team play. So, um, you know, the ideas that you have and, you know, your friends and, and colleagues have uh, are really your generation of are the actual core of Offworld. So just about all of Offworld's engineers are half of the, the age of the founders. Um, and um, so we're, we're an old bunch of founders, seasoned and uh, long <laughs> in tooth and slow in motion. Um, and, and it's our job is just to create the environment so you can go and do what needs to be done and create the systems to make this happen. So it's very much a, a generational team effort, um, but it is exciting. It is exciting because I think we can accelerate our expectations of, you notice I'm very conservative in timescales, but yes. secret, secretly I'm, I'm bullish on how fast the, the delays may be, we may be, we may take longer to get there to start something, but once we're there, it'll be faster than I think we imagine of how it then expands. That's really good to hear. Uh, yeah, yeah, part of the reason why I uh, wanted to have you on here today is, is because I think what you and your team are doing uh, are going to make a really meaningful impact um, here in our solar system. Yeah, possibly. And, and look, I think we'll, we'll play our part. The world tends to move in exponential and um, disruptive timescales, but our minds tend to operate in a linear 
uh, frame of reference. And um, yet the world is, is very geometric in nature and time is geometric in nature. That's why time is extremely valuable. Um, it's non-linear. And as you go through life, you are a young man, as you go through life, uh, one, one thing I think starts to dawn us on, uh, upon us all with time, with time, is the very nature that, uh, of the exponential nature of time. It appears linear at the start because we are in that pre-inflection for many decades. I think we're in a pre-inflection uh, uh, time frame in our lives where whatever we do seems to add, but at some point you reach an inflection and you understand that all the things you've done start to have a massive accumulative effect on what becomes possible. Uh, so it, it means that the more you can do early on, the more you can try and strive, the more you can learn, the more mistakes you can accumulate under your belt to increase your intrinsic experience and understanding of the way things work. The closer or the, the faster you will come to your inflection point, and then the more time of the remaining period of your life you have post-inflection, post your mental inflection, to then wield all of those tools that you've accumulated to literally choose what you want to do and how you want to do it. It's a superpower that emerges. Couldn't agree more. And uh, continue sharing your your, your wisdom. So, uh, hey, it's been an honor, Jim. Uh, Cold pleasure, bud. Look forward to touching base over there in uh, Pasadena, Cali sometime. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, keep taking care and look forward to speak soon. All right. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye.